I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Hospital patients can end up with an infection they didn't have when they arrived at the hospital. This leads to complications and sometimes death. Jenna Wiens, assistant professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Michigan, worked on building a computational model that can learn to prevent infections by determining the risk of getting one. We talked about what data is useful for building this model and the algorithms involved. Jenna also explained different approaches to building a machine learning model for a hospital. Jenna Wiens, Assistant Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Michigan, is joining us this morning. Jenna, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And today we're going to be talking about how hospitals can learn to prevent infections and deaths by taking advantage of the vast amount of data. One of the things that I saw when I was researching for this is that it has been found that a sizable percentage of hospital patients end up with an infection that they didn't even have when they arrive. So I want to start to understand this. How can these patients get these infections at the hospital? Yeah, that's a great question. So potentially harmful bacteria are found throughout the environment. And even in the gut of a small number of healthy patients. But to become infected with one of these harmful bacteria, a patient needs to be both susceptible and exposed to a pathogen. And in a hospital setting, patients are typically receiving treatments for some sort of underlying disease, and this can suppress the immune system, leading to an increase in susceptibility. They can be receiving antibiotics, which can increase susceptibility. And then at the same time, patients may come in contact with the bacteria during their stay because these bacteria can live on the surfaces in hospitals and despite best efforts, people can ingest these bacteria or they can get into the system in, in various different ways. I see. And also, I guess, because there's people coming in and out of the hospital, like visitors, and they might have these bacteria. And like you said, it can just be in the surfaces. Yeah. So it depends on what type of pathogens or bacteria we're talking about. The bug that we've been focused on is Clostridium difficile or C. diff, which is a type of bacteria that forms spores. And these spores are very tough to get rid of. They can survive on surfaces for weeks to months, and once ingested, they can thrive in the environment of the gut and produce harmful toxins and lead to disease. What did you say the name of it is? Clostridium difficile, or C. diff. Okay, C. diff. And this infection can lead to death, right, depending on the state of the patient? Yeah, so it depends on the patient. So some patients are colonized with the bacteria and are fine. Mm -hmm. Other patients, typically those that are on antibiotics. So when you're given an antibiotic, you attack or you wipe out some healthy bacteria in the gut. And these bacteria are typically what protect you from 
um, C. diff. But when you're on antibiotics and these healthy bacteria get wiped out, you're creating an environment in which C. diff can flourish. And when C. diff flourishes, it can cause severe diarrhea. Mm -hmm. It can release toxins that cause inflammation or colitis, inflammation of the colon, and yes, even death. Is it difficult to cure this infection? So it's treated with antibiotics like oral vancomycin, but in cases it can be difficult to cure. And it's estimated that roughly 20% of cases will relapse within 60 days. So it can be a pretty nasty infection and a difficult one to get rid of. Mm -hmm. Especially with a patient that already came in the hospital with some other problems, so they're already weak, and then they get this new infection, right? Exactly. Patients with other underlying disease and comorbidities, and then they end up with um, healthcare-associated infection like C. diff. Okay. Let's talk now about using a computational model to prevent an infection like C. diff. I want to start first with the kind of data that we can use to learn and tackle this problem. What's this type of data? Yeah, so we hypothesize that one of the reasons these infections remain so stubbornly prevalent is because we lack an effective tool to estimate the risk of a patient getting one of these infections. So what we aim to do is um, leverage the data that are routinely collected and stored in the electronic health record to try to build a model of risk so that we can identify those patients who are at greatest risk and then target them with appropriate interventions or treatments or therapies. And what are some examples of the data that you have available? For example, is it the pressure, like the vitals? Yeah, absolutely. So in the electronic health record, we have data pertaining to everything from what medications a patient is on to what procedures they've undergone to where they are in the hospital and who's in the bed next to them, um, what lab results or what labs have been ordered, the result of those labs, their vitals, as you mentioned, so things like respiratory rate, heart rate, blood pressure. And we also have history of the patient to the extent that it's available in the electronic health record. And in this record, is there also information about who took the vitals, like what kind of hospital staff they're seeing? There is some information about staff. It's not as granular, though, as some of the other variables that we include. Talk a little bit about your approach to starting to build this computational model. Like you mentioned earlier, we lack of an effective tool to estimate the risk of getting C. diff. So it sounds like this is how you establish the problem. What do you do next? How do you begin exploring ideas of what to do with the model? Yeah, so what we've been focused on is actually how to build the model or how to learn a model of risk. And to do this, we have looked at the contents of hundreds of thousands of patient records. 
And in these patient records, a fraction will test positive for C. difficile and they'll end up with an infection. And then many others will not. Mm -hmm. So given this information about the actual outcome of a patient, we can go back in time and look for patterns or signals that might point to or indicate a patient's risk. Okay. And to proceed with this, did you take a look at C. diff and sort of find out some known factors that can indicate it's present and then use that as predefined variables for your model? So a traditional approach in the clinical literature would focus on a small set of known risk factors. So for example, the receipt of antimicrobials is a known risk factor since we know it the protective or normal flora in one's gut and then creates an environment in which C. diff can thrive. So these are examples of known risk factors. We include the entire structured contents of the electronic health record. So it includes everything um, that is perhaps a known risk factor and in addition to everything else. And this is really what sets us apart um, from what had been done to date. Okay, and if I understand this correctly, what you're saying is a traditional way of doing it is just to establish a small set of variables, the predefined variables, build a model around that. And what you're doing is processing hundreds of thousands of patients' records and using a bigger number of variables, right? That's correct. So we represent each patient admission day as a set of a thousand, so roughly 5,000 variables. And these variables can change over time as a patient goes on or off of different medications or is moved around the hospital or has different lab tests performed. Earlier, you mentioned the focus is to have a tool to estimate the risk. When I was researching for this, I read there was also a question about the association between the hospital and the rate of C. diff, is that correct? There's an association between the hospital and the rate of C. diff. So different hospitals will have different rates of C. diff infections. Mm -hmm. We are focused on learning hospital-specific models. I see. So a model that is tailored to an institution's patient population, clinical protocols, and electronic health record system. Oh, I see. Okay. So it does fall under the same main question of risk. Let's see. And through this research, you have identified risk factors using tools like machine learning and data mining. I want to ask you about these terms. How do you define machine learning? Yeah, that's a great question. So machine learning is a subfield of AI or artificial intelligence, and it focuses on the study and development and use of algorithms for automatically recognizing patterns in data. And these patterns can be used to make predictions about the future. So, for example, predict who's most likely to get an infection with C. diff next, or can help us increase our current understanding of the world. So what I mean by that is it can help us generate hypotheses or help point us to potential new risk factors of disease that were previously unknown. 
And how is this different from data mining? Yeah, so historically, the data mining community has been focused more on unsupervised learning tasks. But really, today, there is a lot of overlap between the two communities and work that appears could appear in either one. I see. And in this case, the problem you're exploring is supervised because, like you said, you started out with all these records and you know the answer if the person got C. diff or not, right? Yeah, that's correct. So we have labeled data in our model. So we know who got C. diff and who didn't. And then what we do is we train an algorithm to optimize an objective function that incorporates this information. I've talked to several people that work in machine learning, and a big part of the work, they say, is to gather the data, clean it, and process. And then at the very end, you just do the algorithm, and it can be a few lines of Python. So I'm curious about this process of data cleaning for your case. What were some of the things that you had to do to the data? Yeah, so that's a great question. Electronic health records are notoriously messy. There's a lot of irregularly sampled variables. So, for example, vitals might not be sampled every hour. or um, So some patients you'll have more frequent measurements, some patients you'll have fewer measurements. So the first thing we had to do was think about the use case for the model because that drove how often or how frequently we made predictions mm -hmm. for a given patient. And then that drove how we represented the patient's data. So we focused on making predictions at the daily level. So we extract from the EHR information a visit day. And then from there, we record everything that's happened in that day. And we relied on reference ranges. So these are clinically defined cutoffs for lab results and vitals that uh, correspond to critically high or high, normal, low, or critically low. If a variable wasn't measured, we actually encode it as missing or not measured because there's some information there. And if a physician has chosen not to order a particular lab result or measure a particular vital, they might suspect that value is perhaps normal. So we encode that missingness, and that was an important piece. We also tried to, as automated a process as possible, so relying on reference ranges that are already in the database, um, for other continuous variables, we would discretize them based on the distribution in the data. Um, so discretize a continuous variable such as age based on quintiles, and this could really be tailored to each institution so that if you have one institution that's really focused on elderly patients or pediatrics, then you wouldn't have everyone discretized in the same way, but it's really driven by the population that the institution sees. One thing that I found interesting that you mentioned is that for the values that were not present, the vitals that a person didn't take, you decided to put missing value. Other approaches that I know of can consist of taking the average, or like you said, sometimes it's because the doctor assumes they're normal, so you could have made that decision to put normal vitals in there. What was the reason why you opted for the missing value instead? Yeah, so we've explored a little bit with imputation techniques. They rely on assumptions, 
right? So you need to make a choice or decision about how to impute these values. Do you replace them with normal? Do you carry forward? So just carry the most recent value. And these assumptions can be very um, data dependent. So depending on what feature you're using, different assumptions may or may not hold. Again, just improve or try to increase the generalizability of the approach. We just do not make any assumptions and just model the data as they appeared in the EHR as missing. Yeah, I think this also makes sense here because we're dealing with healthcare and medical and you don't really want to insert data that that really isn't right, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah possibly. Can you talk about some of the algorithms used for this research? For example, earlier you mentioned it's mostly supervised learning. Yeah, so we're using supervised learning approaches. We're training linear models here. So that was a really important decision that we made. So while a non-linear model may have um, performed slightly better, in terms of the overall accuracy. The linear model gives us much more transparency or interpretability as to not only who's at risk, but why the model is making the predictions it's making. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we saw very little difference in the performance of the nonlinear versus the linear model and ultimately decided that that level of interpretability was important enough that we should be moving forward with a linear model. Yes, and that's very important. I've also heard of this for financial institutions or banks. If the machine learning algorithm is this black box and it just decides you're not going to get a loan, people are going to wonder, well, why? Like, what was the logic so that's why in, in some cases, this transparency is more crucial, right? Yeah, so that's sort of related to fairness and bias in these models. Here, it even goes, it can be even simpler than that, and just the ability to debug, right? So without knowing why the model's making the predictions it's making, it's very difficult from a researcher's perspective to identify um, label leakage, for example. So label leakage is the idea that you're somehow leaking information about the labels into your input. So whatever you're putting into the model to get you a prediction. So for example, in our work, um, we're very careful to only include variables prior to the test, the laboratory test for C. difficile, because we want to, we're predicting, right, and not identifying. So we only use variables prior to this lab test but when we did this, we ended up with very good results at first because we were including empirical treatment. So when patients receive or when a clinician suspects infection, they may choose to start treating that particular infection before the lab tests come back. And that can be a very good indicator, it turns out, of who's at uh, most likely to test positive. But we're not, in fact, predicting C. diff infections really in that case. We're encoding a lot of clinical suspicion. So we backed off even further and looked at two days prior to the lab result. I see. But we wouldn't have been able to identify that issue had the model not been transparent. Mm -hmm. Okay. And earlier, you were talking about comparing the accuracies of the linear model versus the nonlinear model. 
there are different metrics to evaluate models. For example, precision and recall, the F1 score. Some of these ways to measure the machine learning algorithm, they end up just being about exploring, you know, the number of false negatives or false positive. In this case, for your model, what's important to take into account when evaluating it? Yeah, so evaluation is a really critical step in any sort of applied machine learning project. Here, we've been optimizing for the area under the receiver operating characteristics curve, um, so the AUC. And we optimize for this because what's important depends on the intervention. So by looking at the ROC curve, which is the trade-off between sensitivity and specificity, Mm -hmm. we can choose any point on that curve. And depending on our tolerance for false positives or a desired level of sensitivity. And that's really dependent on how you plan to use the model. So what's the intervention? Is the intervention low risk and inexpensive? In which case you can tolerate a very high number of false positives. If the intervention, on the other hand, um, is very costly, um, you have limited resources, for example, if you want to place a patient in a private room and you only have a limited number of private rooms, then there's a very low number of false positives that you can tolerate. And in this case, I guess, for healthcare, it matters a lot, the false negatives, right? Because it can lead to someone's death. If you classify somebody as not at risk, maybe it's one thing that you want to consider more, right? Well, again, it depends on the intervention and the risks associated with that intervention. Okay. Right? So if if someone, if there's, for example, a drug that could potentially prevent if the patient has the disease, but harm if the patient doesn't have the disease, then you have to think really carefully about, you know, the costs and the benefits of applying any intervention. Okay. And like you said, the costs also play an important role. Before we finish, I want to talk a bit about machine learning and hospitals. Throughout this work and other experiences, have you seen if there are barriers to having more machine learning systems in hospitals? So I think that we need to think very carefully about what kinds of machine learning systems be most useful. Um, So in addition to being accurate, I believe models need to be actionable. So it's not enough to simply say who's at greatest risk, but also tell me what I could do about it. Mm -hmm. Um, How can I change the outcome of the patient? Models also need to be robust to changes. Um, So healthcare evolves over time. Pathogens evolve over time. And these models need to be able to adapt to these changes um, so that they're continuously learning. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a new, these sorts of dynamic or continuously learning models present a new challenge to healthcare systems. Mm -hmm. And finally, these models need to be transparent or interpretable. And I think that some barriers are still you know, a lack of trust between black box models and 
a physician who intends to use them. I see. And some additional examples of this actionable portion, for example, that I can think of for your particular case is also if you notice that a certain person, a certain staff in the hospital, when they take the vitals, the patient's risk increases. That's also another thing. Maybe you want to explore what the staff is doing wrong or ways. Well, you have to be careful because these models are identifying associations in the data. I see. Right. So maybe there's a particular nurse and every time he or she takes vitals, he or she has the most difficult cases, mm-hmm. right? And just simply because that they're more difficult cases, they're at greatest risk. So it's not that this particular nurse is causing an increase in the risk, yeah. but, but merely associated. So these models, you know, there's a really important point that you brought up that it shouldn't, it can never be emphasized enough that these are correlations and not causations. Mm-hmm. But we can treat them as hypothesis generation tools, right? So if you see a particular association that's continuously coming up, then you can think about how one might be able to do a causal analysis Mm -hmm. to establish uh, a causal relationship. Yeah, the reason that I thought of this is because I had been reading that sometimes it can be they don't really wash their hands, but you're right. I mean, you don't really have to point a finger to somebody like you have the bacteria or something. It's your fault. No, it's because they are taking care of patients like you said, they're more, they're sick, right? They're more sick than other patients. Right. Yeah. There could be yeah. confounding factors here. And there, yeah. there most certainly are because we're dealing with such a high dimensional space. I see. From your experience in working in hospitals, what do you think it would take for these hospitals to want to spend more money in machine learning approaches? Yeah, that's a good question. Unfortunately, the financial incentives to create new diagnostic or clinical decision support tools are not as strong as creating new drugs. Mm -hmm. So there just simply aren't as many people in this space. But I think hospitals will really start to invest once they see an impact. So once they see an impact and they see an improvement in patient care, change in patient outcomes, they'll come around and start to see the value of these approaches. So we need a few clear wins to serve as catalysts. And it's not clear that we're there quite yet. And do you see this going in um, machine learning and human system, like not completely replacing someone's function in a hospital? Do you see this hybrid approach as being more popular? Absolutely. Okay. Not just more popular, but essential. I think that we're never going to replace healthcare staff, mm-hmm. but we can augment healthcare staff. We can help. Right now, they're just suffering from a tremendous amount of information overload. Yeah. They're, you know, studying more and more data about patients and still ignoring the vast majority of it. So how can we build models and techniques that can distill that information down to the actions or the knowledge that's really necessary to make decisions? So again, this is decision support, not necessarily uh, models making conclusions and decisions for the physicians. Okay. Well, Jenna, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great talking with you. Oh, well, thank you so much for all the great questions. It's been a lot of fun.